I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Joanna Ebenstein, a curator and author best known for her work with morbid anatomy. Her books include Death, a Graveside Companion, The Anatomical Venus, The Morbid Anatomy Anthology, and Walter Potter's Curious World of Taxidermy. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Now also available on iBook and Kindle. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a 2-3-c-a Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. As, as much as this is a dreadful situation with a lot of pain for myself and others, I am kind of excited to see what good things might come out of it. This, um... I would never have chosen to go through this time in the world, but here we are. And I'm very, yeah, kind of excited about the positive possibilities of, like, the world is being turned on its head right now, and that's never a comfortable place to be. But it means real change might happen, and I'm really fascinated to see what happens next. Yeah, exactly. It's an opportunity to invent something new instead of just going with the same old, same old that we've been doing for ever. Right. And that we know intellectually is driving our planet into the ground and making our existence really fraught, you know? So I feel like there, this really is a moment, um, and I don't know how it will play out. I mean, I know there's a lot of people with very dark fantasies about what could play out, um, but I think there's some real positive possibilities as well. And I think... Um, after this, this will be the new normal. Like now, I think people had a block against this being a possibility, but we had to do it and we can see that it works, that businesses haven't crumbled, that people are still getting their work done. I think it's going to change a lot of things. I think there's going to be a lot less offices in Midtown, you know, forcing people to commute. Um, I think it might have some good effects. Exactly. And then there's less traffic and it's better for the environment. And yeah, like you said, people can be more creative and not so worried about what's going to sell, do more like what they want to do. That's true. I didn't think about that like as an extension for other people. For us, it, yeah, it's 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 much easier to be experimental at this point because, that, you know, it's like, who knows? But also we have a big enough mailing list that like chances are good that at least 40 people are going to want to watch anything that we think is interesting, you know? Exactly. You know, I... I've always been someone, or not always, but at least for the last 20 years, I've been self-employed. I spend a lot of time at home. I contemplate death and think about what I want to do with my time on Earth. But I think a lot of people are never put into that situation, or very rarely in the Western world. And I think there's a huge number of people now who are having the same kind of experiences that people like I have 
been driven to because of our own histories or whatever. Um, and I think that has the potential for for radicalizing change, or maybe radicalizing is too strong. Grassroots, something grassroots might just shift in. Um, I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, what one thing this situation has really done is really clarified for me what I need to be happy. And it's much less than I thought. And it doesn't require living in New York City. That's another thing. Um, so I think a lot of people, I assume, um, are thinking or working through similar things consciously or unconsciously. And what do you think with your, um, as an analyst and as someone who's talking to a lot of people, what are your thoughts? I mean, people are definitely anxious right now, <laughs> for sure. But I agree with you that, you know, while some people are seeing, like, what could happen really bad, I think that even makes it even more important that we also, like, dream big in the other direction and, like, see what we could really do to make this a time of change and, like, really implement something different. And like you said, there's people have known for a long time, like my entire life, decades and decades, um, that were like ruining the environment and the oil companies are destroying a lot of things and there's a lot of problems. Um, but I think nobody could really wrap their heads around how they would implement change, especially like on a grassroots level, like these corporations and these companies are so huge and they own so much and they kind of just do what they want no matter what we've wanted to happen. And now they've all like come to a, a halt, you know, like everything's come to a standstill um, and it wasn't their choice and it wasn't our choice, but now it's here. So it's like, all right, let's, so now we can use this opportunity or this space or this cut to like, make a new way forward instead of just going back into the old routine. Right. Yeah. In a way, you know, hearing you say that and thinking about just the process of individual analysis, it, it's, it's kind of, um, not that dissimilar to personal like individuation or something, is it? It's like destroy. Well, it's, in a sense, going back to the idea of death in the service of life, you know, it's like having to let something die in order for something new to be born. And that is, incredibly anxiety producing and, um, terrifying and all of these things. But without that, there is no real possibility for a real change, right? Absolutely. We should talk about what you do so people know. Sure. So I, um, it's so hard to explain what I do. I'm best known for a project I do called morbid anatomy, which is how I know Vanessa. Uh, morbid anatomy started as a blog in 2007. It was I created it just in support of a photo project. I don't even know if you know this. I was doing a photo project at that time. I was more into visual arts and photography. And I did an exhibition for the Alabama Museum of the Health Sciences about medical museums. And when I came back from this trip to gather material, which was a month long, I call it a pilgrimage. And it really felt like that. I went all around Europe and I met with curators and I really immersed myself in the material. They were incredibly lovely and generous. They gave me articles to read and books to read. And so I came home and I had so much in my head, images to sort, ideas to kind of work through, that I started a blog just as a tool. And I called it Morbid Anatomy because... I wanted it to be some sort of a medical double entendre. There were so many I could use it. Just something about morbid anatomy, you know, in, in medical terms, that just means pathology. It's the study of when the body goes wrong. But it has, to me, a kind of double resonance, which is um, the idea of morbid. And I should say, you know, I've always been interested in life and death. And when I was a kid and well beyond, I was called morbid quite a lot. So it's kind of my way of reclaiming morbid as well in this idea that I would argue, and I think this project argues, that um, through looking at images from history, 
we can see that we are the outliers here. Uh, it is. It is. It was never seen as morbid to look about, look at, or contemplate death until I would say, around. 1890 to 1920, there's a shift that happens, and then we become who we are now. But until then, if you look at images from the past, death is everywhere, and it's combined with beauty in ways that I found very surprising, and that's one of the things this project explores. So it started as a blog, and then I had a list of books as my bibliography, and people began to ask if they could access these books, and so I opened the Morbid Anatomy Library. Then we started doing events in the space next door, and then I worked with six other people to rent another space called observatory where we started doing lectures. We would take turns doing lectures and exhibitions. And then I met a woman named Tracy Hurley Martin who um, really loved the project and she thought it could be something a lot bigger. And so she and I teamed up to build where you know me from, I believe, which is the morbid anatomy museum. And so that was open from I think 2012, 2016. And then we closed and for a while kind of went dormant. And then we just started doing projects again the last few years. But in addition to Morbid Anatomy, I've done a number of books on topics that are mostly related, things like The Anatomical Venus. I did a book called Death, a Grave, Graveside Companion, which is like, a, ah, there you go. <laughs> I have two. <laughs> And I've got a few more coming out. So, you know, books, I'm, I'm a book collector, as you know, having seen my space. I love books. I used, I'm i a book designer. Um, I used to want to be a book illustrator when I was a kid. So books are very close to my heart. And even though they make zero money, I still love making them. Us too. Carl has a publishing company, and we just love making books. And, yeah, he can only make a couple hundred copies at this point. <laughs> For you, as someone who's self-published, it's it's so incredibly expensive. But there's nothing like a book, you know. Even in this digital age that we were singing the praises of, which I love so much, there's still something magical about a book. Uh, you pick it up, you open it. I have a whole stack of books I'm reading. I can't do Kindle. There's something in me I just can't. I can't get into. I can do audio sometimes, but I can't do Kindle. Yeah, no, books are like to totemic. I like I I don't know. They're talismanic, and. Uh... Yeah, I can't read. I can't even read like articles online. I have to print everything out and read it on paper. There's something about the light of the screen that it just bothers my eyes. I think also I look at the computer enough, so when I'm reading, I'd like to not be looking at the computer. But that's just me. No, and it's not just you. <laughs> and I also feel like there's something about the computer that just makes you want to keep moving. Like I can't, I can't hone my attention when I'm at the computer. If I close my computer and I sit on a different chair, I totally can. It's the computer's not a place for attentive uh, concentration. For right. Me. It's for scrolling and flipping between websites and checking email <laughs> and Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. For sure. Yeah, no, the, the, the space, I think you remember you had the space before the, uh, before the museum. I remember that space. It was like a little space behind another space. I you remember going there at some point. Yeah. And yeah, then, that, that's, yeah. It was really nice. It was really sweet. I love that space. As a matter of fact, oddly enough, right, be right before this all started, we rented that same space. We're moving back in there. But it's it's now put on hold when that will happen. But the library will be open again. We'll be having classes in that space if and when the world goes back to normal. It, it was really nice. And that was mostly like your personal collection. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, and the museum, of course, was amazing. And these like amazing collections anatomical venus and just all sorts of different like medical oddities figures and taxidermy and incredible stuff 
It was a lot of fun. Um, at that point, I feel like New York needed it. And maybe less so now. I think um, there's other museums that have seen that. I think we showed people it was safe to do this, you know. Um, so, it, But when we started, there really was nothing like it. And um, I think we really filled a gap. Yeah, for sure. And, of course, I did the Psychoanalysis Art and Occult series. And that was Carl. Carl's, I invited Carl to do a lecture as part of that series. And that was actually our first, like, event that we had done together. That was before we got together. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, you cute. Yeah. I met did him you... once. He was in New York for a book launch party uh, for his first novel, Mother Have a Safe Trip. And that was at Catlin Books. Um, and so I went to that, and that's how we met, and then we stayed in touch, and I wrote some pieces for his Fenris Wolf series, and then uh, he was coming to New York for the Occult Humanities Conference, and I was speaking at that, too, and then I was doing the series there, and I was like, oh, while you're here, come come give a talk in my series, <laughs> Morphin Anatomy, uh, and he did, so it was like the first time we did something together. I like that. Yeah. I really enjoyed series a lot like I always thought you were as I think I said to you at the time you're a very very good moderator you're you're really good with like drawing the speakers out and, and framing the event really beautifully and you brought in such an interesting array of people it yeah, was really, it was really cool. fun and then yeah. of course I have to say something about your patreon because it's amazing I can't believe you guys just had an event like yesterday and it's already up on your site <laughs> 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 well, we love, thank you for the, like the Patreon is actually on a personal level. It's such an unsexy thing to talk about, but I love it so much. And I love that we're at the point now that we can actually pay people a little decently. Like before, when we started, we just had no budget. And now that it's making money, we, we can, my fantasy is that this will someday be a proper online journal. And I think that the paywall, it's very low, first of all. And second of all, I kind of like it because I feel it's almost like a little protective, uh, Tenemos around it, you know, it's like a, a little wall that means you can be a little more experimental and know that it's not going to just be floating around on the internet for anyone to find. I think it, it's definitely given me a space to be much more playful and experimental with the kind of articles I'm writing. And I love seeing other people doing the same. It's like a, you know, we always, you know, a, a term we always call the, the online journal in our own words is, um, what do we call it? Um, Journal, rogue scholarship, essentially. We've had this idea of rogue scholarship for a while, morbid anatomy, just this idea of using academia as a um, as a point of inspiration, but then being playful with it. And I, I'm really, really excited when there's stuff that is quite scholarly, but also fun or subjective or these other things you're not really allowed to put into academic uh, productions. Totally. You know? I'm right there with you. I love rogue scholarship. It's a great term. Um, and independent scholarship is so important. And I actually feel like I can't write for academic journals anymore. I just feel like I just can't, I just need to just be able to write and not have to like edit because someone thinks I need to say this or reference this thing. It's like, I know how to reference. I know how to think. <laughs> I've done it for a long time now. So I just want to say what I have to say. And I don't yeah. want to go over and over and over it like 300 times, you know? I'm right there with you. And I, I feel like I'm so, you know, I love, love, love being in school. I love classes, but, and I've really flirted with going back to grad school and getting a PhD about three major times in my life. And each time, right when I get to the end, I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, I'm already doing this work. I'm not making any money, but I won't be making any money as an academic anyway. And I don't have to go through this rigid process that I don't really feel I need. I just, you know, it's like, there are other ways to, um, to find a way to present your research. And I think, um, 
academia can also be so closed off and um, hard to understand for people outside of the field. And, and that's something that I've, I guess I'm a populist at heart. I really like things that reach more people. And um, at heart, I love academics. I you know, I read a lot of academic books in order to get the information to write, say, the anatomical Venus. I have to, and I respect it, and I think it's super important. Um, but that's just not who I am. I'm a, I'm a lateral rather than a depth thinker. I like how things go out, and I like how things connect. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I'm the same way, and I, I try to write uh, things about psychoanalysis in a way that people that are not in the field can read and get something out of. And in the talks, too, it's like if you talk about things that people find interesting that aren't in the field, like art or the occult, for example, then like you get more people outside of the field to think about psychoanalytic ideas. And usually when you take out all the jargon, they make sense to people because they can understand because they are also living human lives. <laughs> so they have these experiences of the unconscious too. Yeah. 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 I like your, um, in the talk that, that you put on our Patreon um, where you made a joke or you I don't even know if you were making a joke, but you said, or worse, Jungian and everyone just laughed and kind of applauded. And I was like, sad that that's true, you know? Yeah. No, it's a joke, but it's really true in the field. It's like, when the field is like, it's like, well, first of all, I mean, everything's divided. All the different kinds of analysts are divided and all arguing with each other. But the unions are, like, way over there. It's like nobody even talks to the unions except for the other unions. And, like, even in New York, there's two union institutes because at some point the union institute split. So now there's, like, two, and they don't talk to each other. You know what I mean? It's like, you guys, we need to all talk to each other because it's such a small field as it is that all this, like, in-arguing, it's, like, fine to have, like, rigorous debates and everything, but at the end of the day, we're all, like, on the same team. You know, we all want to, like, do talk therapy. So, like, let's try to help make that happen as opposed to, like, the medicalization of everything. Yeah. You know? But, yeah, that was, yeah, I had to throw that in there. <laughs> someone who's a big fan of Jung, and I, I quote him a lot, and I just, he's a huge inspiration to me. And I, and my aunt's a Freudian, and I remember when I discovered Jung, because a friend gave me Man and the Symbols um, about 20 years ago, and I, I just loved it so much. I read it, and I was like, wow, this is like what I would have written if I was smart enough to articulate. It just felt like someone like me who was doing this kind of work. And when I, I talked to my aunt about it, she just like, she just rolled her eyes and she's like, oh, well, he's been completely discredited. <laughs> and I was it's like, a shame. Well, that's not true. Like, maybe that's what people say, but his ideas have like really permeated society as much, if not more than Freud's, you know, like AA from him, the lie detector test comes from him, the Myers-Briggs test, like the idea of introvert and extrovert, like discredited, like the shadow. No, I think he's, his ideas are probably the most widespread of of any analysts actually. Right. Yeah. Maybe that's what they don't trust is it's too populist, you know? Yeah, and I it, also hate that argument that people like if it's like too popular, it's like too many people can understand it. It's not it's too simplistic or it's not rigorous enough or something like that. It's like, no, he's just explaining things clearly. <laughs> a good communicator, I would argue. You know, as someone who struggled through when I went to university, cultural theory was ruling the world. And I tried all these majors that I think if I'd gone to school ten years earlier or ten years later would have been perfect for me. But at that time it was just cultural theory. So I tried you know, literature, I was like, oh my God, I can't do this. I tried art history, I was like, okay, 
we didn't even talk about German expressionist art. And that's what this class is supposed to be about. And then I became, I studied intellectual history because it, it did have theory, uh, but it also, we had to base it in something grounded in reality. There had to be some, we had to look at other sources. And then I was like, okay, this is okay. But I think when I had to read these theorists, especially, no offense, I know people love her and I, I think she's important and all that, but Donna Haraway uh, was a professor at my school. And I just, I just couldn't, it just felt like smoke being blown in my eyes. I was just say what you want to say. Like, I don't understand. Maybe I'm, I'm very simple minded, but it was, um, it seemed to me, and maybe this is part of the problem with the humanities is you have to have, you feel, people feel they have to have this terminology and they have to have this impenetrability or they don't seem like it's a science that doesn't seem serious enough. You know, it's like, um, yeah, but as someone from California, I think inherently I'm a populist and I like, I like things that are fun and accessible and smart. You know, I don't see any contradiction there necessarily. There need not be a contradiction, let's say. Yeah, that. absolutely. I think another thing that happens from academia is that, uh, you know, people are forced, they have to write so so much so often uh, in order to, like, keep their jobs, basically. And I feel like when I read a lot of a lot of people, it's like they're saying the same thing over and over over again, but they've like learned very creative ways to say these things that are like very long winded. And it's like literally that just took like 60 pages and you probably could have said that in like eight. You know, <laughs> that's how I feel as well. But anyway, please don't hate us academics. We I know, love I, you. I, Keep I, doing I, your work. We, we're I just in another super. area where we want to get the work out, your work out there yeah. to yeah. more people. <laughs> um, yeah, it just reminds me too, I'm taking this class. The great thing about this issue is that a lot of classes at specific places are now going online. So it's where you used to have to go to an event at, at the location. Now you can just take these classes online. So I'm trying to take advantage of that while it's happening. And the Freud Museum in London is giving classes, oh, these classes called projections that this uh, woman, Mary Wilde, does as she takes psychoanalytic theory and applies it to film. And so she did a class on the Joker a few weeks ago, and I took that, and it was great. And we, like, watched all the different ways the Joker has been portrayed, like, from the man who laughs in, like, the 1920s all the way to the current-day Joker. And now this weekend she's doing one on David Lynch. Um, wow. So so this week I watched Lost Highway, uh, Mulholland Drive, and Inland Empire, like, in a row, which is, like, really done something to my mind, I must say. <laughs> it's, like, a lot of Lynch in a few days, um, which in a good way. Um, and she showed, the first class was today, and so she showed an interview with him. And uh, the person who was interviewing him told him that, like, a lot of people when talking about his films like to talk about it from a Freudian or Lacanian perspective. And he hasn't even heard of Lacan. He's like, I've heard of Freud. He's like, I, I don't know who Lacan is. And then he's like, I just like to talk about what you don't see in people. Like, the, what you see of people is just so surface. And I just like to talk about, like, what's beneath the surface, which is, like, the unconscious and the uncanny and everything else. Um, but I love that. It's like people think that you have to have read all of these things to, like, make these ideas. Is, but it's like, no, these ideas come from people's lives. So yeah. you can just write about or make film or art about your life, and it will have these uncanny, unconscious aspects if you're not being too cerebral. Yeah, that's well said. It reminds me, too, didn't I believe in Freud's essay on the uncanny? He basically was, well, he was talking about E.T.A. E. Hoffman's um, 
short story, The Sandman, and he basically was saying that poets and writers um, know more about the subconscious and knew sooner than psychoanalysis, that, that they were already intuiting these truths through their work. Um, exactly. Just going to exactly what you're saying, it's like he formula, like formulated um, a structure and a set of terminologies and some rules around what was already being discovered by like the romantics and other people who were deeply introspective, I think. Exactly. Yeah, you know, he said that. He said, wherever I go, I've always, I always find a poet has been there before me. Yeah, I think that's very beautiful. It really is. Um, yeah, and that's the other reason why I really don't like there being too much dogma uh, in the different psychoanalytic theories and why I don't really understand why they all argue so much. Um, because the way I look at it is like these are all different ways to look at the mind and like maybe they some theorists work for some people and some for others or maybe some theorists resonate with you more at different parts in your life and they, that can change because like every like there's no point in arguing what's the correct terminology when like everything exists in the unconscious and you don't have to like worry about contradicting yourself because of course you're going to contradict yourself because that's just how people are that's like it's all in there and sometimes you contradict yourself or each other and that's just natural right there's no problem with it so yeah and I think Jung's work especially the red book and it's so sad yeah. to me that he felt like he had to hide that for so long um and yeah. I also recently read that Lacan used a lot of surrealist uh ideas so he was hanging out with the surrealists in his in his like doctoral work when he was writing like his dissertation or his medical thesis when he was becoming a medical doctor. He was like studying psychosis and also like hanging out with surrealists. And he realized like he could uh, apply some of the ideas and games that the surrealists were using to like his work with psycho psychotic patients and like wrote about it in that way, but purposely left out that any of these ideas came from like artists because he felt like his. Uh, authority figures that were like supervising him would look down on that and I really hate that it's such a shame it is a shame um it's yeah these walls that we have up that are so big between the disciplines between different people and this you know going back to academia this kind of jockeying for position and power that people seem to think is really really important like when I did the anatomical venus book one of the hardest things for me is I really upset an academic whose work I drew on and not I don't I'm not going to name any names but this person sent me like a long very personally attacking email about how I stole her research and I was a horrible person and I am not part of the academic world. I, I credited her. I gave her a, pull quote, a giant pull quote with her name. I talked about her theories within the text. I fought to keep that in there rather than pretending it was my idea, which my publishers were like, just, you know, you should be the authority. I'm like, this is her idea. Um, but after finding that out, and it was very, very surprising and hurtful, just talking to other academics, and I heard the story that you will appreciate with your interest in the occult, which is I was talking to a friend of mine, and she said, oh, yeah, a friend of mine is a sorcerer, and he says that the people who come to him for curses more than any are academics cursing other academics. And it just made me think about I just laughed because I was like, what, you know, there's something true about that. There's something about academics that I think it's, like, built into that system. It's so competitive and, um, and uh Combative. It's it's like the only way that you're going to get this very elusive tenure track job in a decent city is by luck and will and um, just full power taking down anyone who's in your way. You know, it's it seems like a really rough world. I think. 
Yeah, that jockeying for position, like you're saying, and like feeling like you have to hold on to the position. I feel like that's that's like kept the field of psychoanalysis much smaller than it needs to be because all the institutes are so, you know, everybody wants to be the authority on it and like, you know, be the place to go. And like everybody within these structures like wants to keep their position so much rather than just being like, you know, hey, everyone, let's learn about this, you know, like, let's make it more open and accessible for more people. It's more like wanting to be elite just for the sake of like having that power or imagined power or whatever people think it is. Yeah. Or like protection from some feared, uh, scarcity, you know, you know, like that somehow if they don't do that, they're not going to have what they need to have to survive. It's, it's very, it's like fear-based I feel like. And it's, it's sad actually. Um, and yeah, and that was, you know, in, when I ended up talking to this academic, I was like, well, you know, you published this article that, that you, it's not your information. You don't own these facts about the past just because you did all the work, you know, I'm allowed to, to quote it. I'm allowed to use this information. And, and I was like, why did you publish it if you didn't want to share it? That, that's the point of publishing. That's the right? point. People can build on what you've built. And she, it was a real, um, a different attitude that I'd not encountered before. Yeah. And I actually think that same kind of attitude is permeating the culture in general and has like kept all these problems in play. Right. Like everyone having this idea that like, you know, there's haves and have nots and, you know, I have to have it or else it's going to get taken from me. When really, in my experience, at least, like I'm very into like supporting everyone and like somebody has something they're interested in. It's like, yeah, let's go do it. Like, what, like, how can we support you? And like, going for it you know and the more like everybody's kind of doing what they will or desire to do the more everybody's doing better so like yeah, what's I, the problem I agree with you 100 percent, and I think it is something ingrained in our system and actually right before our conversation I was um I'm doing research right now on this um this, <laughs> this is something I'm very excited about um I spent some time in Bolivia and down there there is a folk deity um, called El Tio. He's like a devil of the mines. And I've, I've been collecting all this research around him and his creation. And basically he was created in a town called Potosi, which was the biggest silver rush that has ever happened. It, it was Renaissance. It was like 1578. I think they discovered silver there and it was so huge. It became like a boom town overnight with people. Again, this is in the South America at a hugely high elevation where it's hard to even be there. I was there and it's like, I had to get a shot in order to like not be sick, it's such high elevation, became a boom town overnight. People all around the world, and real, they found a shitload of silver, and it went for two hundred years. But there were real, real atrocities committed there. Not surprisingly, um, there a lot of a lot of people died in the mines, and more than that. But um, the point is, I was reading about this concept that I remembered hearing about called Watigo. Have you heard of Watigo? It's a Native American concept, and suddenly I was like, you know. Okay, so Watigo basically is it's I think it's an Algonquin word and it was a it was seen as a sickness. It was like a sickness that forced you to cannibalize those around you um, because you felt you couldn't have enough and you it, the only way to survive was to take them and, and kind of consume them. And when the white man came, when Europeans came, they were like, oh, this is a, a race infected with Watigo. And I've just been thinking lately about capitalism in general. And, you know, Potosi was a great example of, of capitalism and how it justifies itself and like ecclesiastical like high up ecclesiastical people knew this was happening. They were writing letters to the King. Others were defending it. Like literally there was as many people who died as pounds of silver that were taken out well known at the time. Um, and yet it continued. 
And to the extent that the natives actually thought, you know, here the Europeans come in and tell us that we are barbarians for human sacrifice, but they thought that the Europeans were doing human sacrifice, that it was a tacit agreement they had with the devil or God in order to get the silver, they would sacrifice these people. And so I think it's a very roundabout way of saying, I think there is something, there is a sickness in our society, which is this feeling of of lack and fear, I think, you know, and I, I've been thinking, is this always been the case? Is this from capitalism? Is this when did this start? You know, did did cultures 120,000 years ago when they were struggling with, um, you know, of course, very real challenges to survival, were they dealing with this fear and this lack that also, I think, makes people live very truncated lives? And, you know, what they say about Watigo in the in the Native American tribes, it turns your, your heart to ice. It ices your heart and, and basically destroys the person who has it. It's a virus as they see it. Um, and it's always looking for a host. And yeah, I've just been thinking of a lot about that. And, you know, what you say is so true. And I think what you say also comes from a sense of faith that what you are doing is uniquely you and you don't need to compete with anyone because no one can do what Vanessa Sinclair does. They might be looking at the same material, but they're going to have a different, it's not competitive. It's a different, um, it's like a different facet. Everyone's got a different like view, point of view. And they're, they're all interesting. <laughs> everyone would actually be doing like what they really thought. So, yeah, I don't know. I obviously don't have any solution, but I, it's something I've definitely been thinking about. And, you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation of what future I might want to see when this is over, like if there was some way that maybe this reminds people that we can take care of ourselves, that actually this is like an unthinkable situation that we're all getting through and not all, obviously we're not all getting through, but many, many people are going to get through and maybe have more self-trust and maybe not have this scarcity model in the same way. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I must say for sure though, health insurance, I really hope the U S eventually gets health insurance for everyone. Cause I can tell you just knowing that it's there, it's like, it's just like a huge layer of stress. That's just like, gone from your life you're like oh it's there if something happens it's like so stressful to live without that and of course I lived without that my whole life till like a year ago <laughs> but it's really nice to know it's there professionally and people tell me how great America is I always say do you want do you want to know how much I spend for health insurance you know and then I still have deductibles it doesn't mean that I'm covered either you know I can still be bankrupted if I can't no I know it's like I feel like each country I visit has its Achilles heel, you know, and this is really the Achilles heel of the United States. You can't get around it. It's, it's real. And I think, I wonder like when people get these medical bills at the end of this, or if they do get medical, bill, like if they're not abolished, like, you know, a friend of mine who I interviewed for, for our Patreon, John Troyer, he was saying, these are very expensive. Like the kind of hospital interventions people are having for this disease are very expensive. Um, if they get billed for this at the end of this, or billed for people who died after undergoing this, is there going to be a revolution? Is there going to? I mean, what? It's a system that. Well, we know it's an untenable system. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. It feels like the situation has really shown the fissures in the United States and and how third world we really are, which I think we knew, I knew a little bit because I've taken people to the emergency room in the middle of the night and watched what happened. You know, like we know, but really now, I don't know. 
Yeah, no, I think I think that's really true too, though, because I know that I I know I knew about it from working in hospitals. I worked in like a government hospital in Miami, and then I worked in a, a New York City government hospital in Brooklyn, and like seeing it firsthand, but not being sick, like just seeing it from working there made me really understand how messed up the medical and mental health care systems were. So I felt fortunate that I could see it like in that kind of objective way rather than like like when my mom was in the hospital or when my dad was in the hospital. That's just like a whole different story. But I think most people only encounter it when somebody or themselves is sick. And until that happens, they don't really fully understand the extent of what a problem it is. Yeah. Agreed. Now, to talk about something fun, can we talk about all your trips to all these countries and these amazing kind of tours that you do? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I love traveling, and that's actually one of the hard... Well, in my way of getting myself through this situation is I'm like, if I survive, I'm going to go to India when this is over. It's something I've always wanted to do, and I don't want to put it off anymore because who knows what's going to happen next, right? Um, I love travel. I've loved travel for a long time. Um at Morbid Anatomy, we have done trips. Our, our most known trip is we go to Mexico for Day of the Dead. We've done that five years, I think. Um, with there's a our former scholar and resident Salvador Olguin. He leads the trips. He's from Monterey, Mexico. Our first trip was Monterey. He takes us to different um, different places where they practice, different regions where they practice Day of the Dead in, in very different ways. So it's been each time is transformative. It's, it's an incredible experience. Um, we've also done pop-ups with the Vrolik Museum in Amsterdam quite a few times. That's a pathological museum. And with a couple museums in Vienna, which are the Narenturm, which is uh, incredible. Have you been to the Narenturm or do you know I it? haven't been to Vienna. I need to oh, go. Have? I know. It's like a pilgrimage I need to take. Yeah, you do need to. You definitely That's need gonna to That's going to be the first place I go after this is over. Yeah. Oh, you're going to love Vienna. It's so special. It's where my grandparents are from. So I've been there a couple times. I love Vienna. Um, very, oh, their museums are amazing. Well, when you go, there's a museum called the Narenturm, and it's in this beautiful old 18th century um, asylum. It's the same asylum that, it, did you ever see Amadeus? Mm-hmm. Do you remember at the beginning, Salieri is in, is in an asylum? It's that one. It's the Fool's Tower, it's called. It's a circle building, and it's got a really interesting occult history, actually, which um, I don't remember the details of, but the curator gave a lecture about it at one of our pop-ups that it was built on all these kind of occult principles around the moon. That's why it's round and the number of units and all these things. It was, it was kind of like enlightenment era science slash occult science trying to, to heal people's um, mental problems. Anyway, there's a great museum there. Now each of those cells is filled with medical specimens and it's just incredible. And then there's also some anatomical venuses are at a museum called the the Josephinum, which is right next to that. And that's incredible. Those are the original. They're made from the original molds, just like the ones in Florence. They're just incredible. Wow. How did you get into the anatomical venuses? Well, so... It started, this whole thing started for me with a book I read by a professor named Stephen Asma, who's a professor at Columbia, not Columbia University, but Columbia College in Chicago. And he wrote a book called Stuffed Animals and Pickled Heads, which is about the history of natural history museums. And at that point, I was really, really interested in natural history museums. And his book talked about all of these medical museums, things like the Mudra Museum in Philadelphia that were all around the world, where you could see these old human specimens going back to like the 17th and 18th century. And when I was reading it, 
I thought, oh my God, I really want to go see these places. And so I just planned a trip and I went to England and France to visit some of these museums. And that's really what started me on my way. And then then when I got the commission to do the project for the Museum of Alabama, I went to all the museums that I had researched. And one of them was the, um, the La Specula, which has the, the anatomical Venus. And so she was special for sure. But I, what I was really thinking about at that point is just a photo project about medical museums. And then I thought, well, I should do a book about this. And that was my original thought. It would just be about these different museums. And I thought, oh, going back to what we were saying about, about academic writing, I was like bored even thinking about writing that book. It's like, oh, like just like all those facts, like really, do I want to read that book? And then I thought, well, is there one object, like one central object that could basically act as a hook to talk about everything that's interesting about medical museums? And I thought, the Venus was the right thing, in part just because um, I loved her so much and she had so many mysteries, but also I could see that when people saw images of her, uh, they were just so flabbergasted that like, they would just instantly just, I would watch them walk into the library and they'd be like, what, what is that? Why was it made? Is it really, you know, like their questions were so basic and so deep that I thought, well, this is it, this is the hook. And then I also felt like the anatomical Venus, like the paths that lead from her could, I could travel them the rest of my life and never be done. Like they're just like, talk about lateral things. She goes out into all directions. So that's how I ended up doing the book on the anatomical Venus. Yeah. I want to live in a world where people make things like that. You know, like I love, I, I, I'm trying to focus instead of like on the, all the terrible things people do all the time. I'm trying to focus on these things that make people really interesting. And like that kind of thing is one of them. Like, She's so, like, seductive. She's, like, a medical model. There's, like, so much to her. She's art. Um, And it's, like, this place where all these things kind of intersect. And it just shows how, like, people have, like, so many different talents and abilities and can combine all these things into, like, one amazing product or piece or whatever venture. Um, And I just love those kinds of intersections. Right. And to me, what she also spoke about is, like, how, you know, I, I, one of the things, you know, my background is intellectual history. And so one of the tenets of intellectual history is to look at cultural products of the past in order to understand the time period. And then in order to understand us too, and our response to it. And so looking at it, you know, from reading all these books, people were not flabbergasted her, by her at the time of her making. They admired her. They wanted copies for their own museum, but it wasn't how we feel about her, you know? And so I really, really wanted to figure out what how was the world different that that was seen as an acceptable and desirable form to demonstrate anatomy, right? Like we can't even imagine that now. And all the things you say are true. You know, there's, there's artists of the very highest level working with doctors and working from, you know, beautiful anatomical atlases. But then on top of that, what I found when I went to Italy to kind of, when I, when I realized I was doing the book, I went back to Italy and just kind of tried to understand where she was made and look at the other cultural products. And what really surprised me and to made the book go a whole different direction was going to churches and seeing these, um, these wax saints who look just like her, except they're wearing clothes, like even to the ecstasy in their faces. And, you know, what I had read as sexuality without even a question, like I was like, Oh, she's, that's a sexualized object. That's not what people thought at the time. And when I went to see Bernini St. Teresa in Rome, you know, which is the most famous artwork that has ecstatic content, I was really shocked they had had, they had printed out next, you know, right where you're reviewing her, St. Teresa's 
uh, diary entries in English and in Italian. I read it. I'd never read it before. And I was like, well, this is a, an orgasm. There's no other way to understand it. And then I emailed a friend of mine, my friend Megan Fitzpatrick, who's a practicing Catholic and really smart. And I said, is there any other way you could see this as an orgasm? She said, yeah, of course. And it just blew my mind. You know, like she was looking at the same thing and seeing something else totally different. And that really intrigued me and made me go down this whole, so whole, the whole chapter in ecstasy really comes from, from Megan. Uh, she inspired it. Before that, I, I was very much, I was much more of a materialist, I think. I just didn't even understand how that could be read in any other way than profane love, you know? Yeah, and then that, I see it, everything as sexual. <laughs> I see everything as sexual. Yeah, and maybe it is. And maybe, I guess the, the distinction is like, but I don't think that's necessarily profane. And I think I didn't understand a world in which there could be a non-profane sexuality until I went down the rabbit hole with those images. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the more, most recent book is the one about death. That's yes, that is my most recent book. That's called Death a Graveside Companion. And that is an edited volume. It's like a thousand images related to how mankind has viewed death in different times and different places. And then it's 13 essays by different scholars along different themes. I love it. Um, I think we have that too. And I just didn't pull it out. Um, <laughs> I know I ordered it, so it must be in the shelf. We have so we have so many books. <laughs> That's a good problem to have. Um, no, and I love that you do things like with Greenwood Cemetery. Uh, I love Greenwood so much. I used to live right there on like 29th and 5th. So Greenwood's like 25th and 5th. And so I used to walk and sit in the cemetery all the time and just like read. I feel like they're just like wonderful, like kind of outdoor museum parks. I don't know. I just love them. Oh, and the church there is amazing. And especially in New York, like it's like, well, not anymore because they've very, I'm very glad they did this. They've opened up their gates and invited people to use it as a, as a recreation space with certain caveats, you know, but, um, before yeah, I got yelled at once for jogging, the guy, the guy I came up and was like, you can't jog in here. And I was like, really? <laughs> you can't do, I got kicked out with my bike when I lived near there as well. I learned the hard way very quickly. But um, to go somewhere in New York that's beautiful and you don't see other people is a real rarity. It is a very, very special place. And, like, the trees are just so magnificent. They're so beautifully manicured. Like, it's, it's, it's ridiculously nice. We're very lucky to have that place. And, yeah, we were delighted to work with Greenwood. They're fabulous. Yeah, it's such, it's such a treasure. And when you go, like, to the t more tops of the hills there, you can look out and see, like, the Statue of Liberty and the whole kind of bay there. It's so yeah. nice. Yeah, it's incredible. Was there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about? Anything you're working on now or have coming up? Well, yeah, there's one thing that might interest your listeners, which is I, so based on the Death of Graveside Companion book, I'm, ish. I'm teaching a class right now, a Zoom class, and it's super fun. It's basically making friends with death with art, image, and imagination, and make your own memento mori from, from the process. So it's a four-week class, and it's a combination of lectures and discussion, but ultimately what each person does is makes their own object, artwork, or artifact that reflects their ideas of death. And so it's kind of trying to use this historic moment we're in to look at past ways death has been looked at and figure out what we think about death at a moment when it's kind of knocking on our door. You know, I think it's a very present. Yeah. In a way that is unprecedented for our culture in the last, at least the last few decades. Um, so I'm really excited about that class. And I feel like seeing what people are doing with the material is incredible. You know, I'm basically 
showing my techniques of creative work, like how I start with an idea and, and go down the rabbit hole and collect and start playing with things and kind of exposing them to the wide range of images of death in different times and places. And they're just coming up with really incredible stuff that is unlike anything I ever would have come up with. And it's, I feel like we're almost working, workshopping ideas of this emergent view of death that might come from this situation. You know, I really do wonder if there will be a new, you know, the Grim Reaper was a product of, of the bubonic plague era, you know, like, will there be some new conception? Um, you know, if death is a great mystery and we're just projecting our imagination onto something, how, how, what will the new images of death be? Where will they manifest? Um, that I'm really curious about that. And I think this class is a fun way to, to kind of try to channel something from, somewhere else and see what happens you know yeah to be creative with it and like work with the emotions instead of trying to like push everything away it's like it's like that's such a difference in this our western united states culture versus other cultures and other times it's like trying to like separate everything so much like people are like die in hospitals and there's like not really as much like ritual around things and everything's like so sanitized and it's like I don't know, chemicals, sanitation, separation, whereas I feel like it used to be much closer, like people took care of their own dead or like had rituals in their own home or at least like in their town. It was like much more like part of life and not we weren't trying to like separate ourselves from it so much. Agreed. And I think less frightening for that, you know, and so, you know, the whole idea of the memento mori is this object that's created in order to remind you that you will die so you can live a better life with your remaining time. And, you know, that's something I'm super interested in, too, is, you know, and that's a, a book I've been working on as well. It's like um, basically contemplating death to live a better life. It's I really, really think it's it's something almost every culture has had in some way, shape or form, except for contemporary Western culture. And it was interesting hearing you say the word separate, because I'd never really thought about that before. And then when I heard you said say it, I was also thinking, oh, well, that's kind of like what we were saying earlier about the academic disciplines or all these things like this idea of separation, this idea of um, what geologists can't talk to biologists, where, you know, Darwin was a dilettante. He wasn't even a scientist. There was no name for that at that time, you know. So I think there's something interesting about that, this idea of separation and the separation of life and death coming out of that time of greater regimentation and separation in different places as well, this anatomizing, this, you know, carving things into separate categories that don't really reflect reality they reflect intellectual ideas totally and i think that's one of the ways the internet has helped too because people like are showing like more range of their personalities and interests whereas like people used to be so encouraged to be like you know like for me psychoanalyst you have to be this way to be a psychoanalyst and you can't talk about any of these other things you know it's like you have to put yourself in this kind of box of what a psychoanalyst is and I think the internet has like had a lot of different people at least that I know and that can see like talking about their full range of interests um, and not like making themselves fit into these tiny boxes so much I think people are so tired of that yeah. Well, it's very limiting and it's, again, very historically new, I think. You know, we had a lecture at our last Amsterdam pop-up about hermaphrodism in the, in the say, case histories from the early 19th century, I want to say. And what was really, really striking is these people, they had their issues, but they were not our issues. They weren't all uptight about where they, what box they fit into in the same way. And these are hermaphrodites we're talking about. You know, they were, they were intersexed. Um, and I was like, wow, this idea that we have is, again, it's, it has not always been the case. And it, it's a lot to struggle under, you know, it's, it's, um, it's so narrow. 
Yeah, very limiting, very narrow, very constrictive. Yeah, and it's just not realistic. It's like no wonder people are like pushing back all the time and acting out against things. It's just not realistic or healthy. Right. And again, it doesn't reflect life as we live it. You know, it's not reflective of the real world. It's it's like when intellectualism becomes so refined that it's it doesn't have much link anymore with the real world and that's where it can get dangerous right it's too abstracted instead of like instead of like there's this kind of uh group or trend hopefully lasting trend in psychoanalysis of like decolonial psychoanalysis and this idea of praxis where it's like you can do the intellectual exercises but then at some point it's good to like put them into practice like there should be a way that like works in practice and praxis as well and not just uh, intellectualizing all the time like that's yeah. great but like how does it all fit together agreed you know okay well I guess I mean the best I'm going to plug your Patreon again because I love it <laughs> thank you thank <laughs> you I'm glad you love it it's, I love editing it it's so fun and we have so much cool stuff you have so much going on and you have so many good classes and like you said like some the classes are available for non-patrons too but the patreon is like it's five dollars a month and as you mentioned it's like that's what the museum membership cost when it was brick and mortar so it's just like the same thing it's like a virtual museum membership i think that's a great way to look at it and totally worth supporting and i also like what you said about being able to like speak more openly there because i feel like that about our patreon as well like I've never felt fully comfortable because I am an analyst, like, speaking, like, you know, a lot of people write how they're feeling that day and complain about things and their boyfriend and whoever, you know, arguing on the internet. And I've never done any of that because I've always been like, somebody could read this. Like, what if one of my patients sees this? I always had to, like, even if my professional interests can get a little creative and out there they're still all like in the realm of like my work so it's not like I'm, I'm never like complaining about how I feel that day or something um so the patreon's been nice because I feel like I can talk a little bit more freely with people there and not feel like so kind of paranoid of like who's gonna see what I'm writing it's like let's it gives me like a little space so I could be a little freer yeah. Yeah. And it's something I first I was like, oh, I don't like this. I hope someday we don't have to charge. And now I'm like, no, it's nice. It's it's I just keep thinking it's like a little it's like a little tower. It's like a little protected tower that protects everybody who wants to write for it and allows them all to be a bit more free. You know, Yeah, and I think it goes along with this uh, way of like we all supported everyone with like five dollars. Like it's not enough. It's not a lot at once. But like yeah. when you have a bunch of people doing that support you, it really helps. And if everybody kind of did that with the people and things that they're interested in and supported each other just a little bit, then, like, everybody would be able to do what they want and not have to be so worried about uh, how they're going to survive. Yeah. Yeah, from your lips to God's ears. Yeah, right. <laughs> We're dreaming big for That's the future. Right. It was the world <laughs> I like it. Utopian creativity. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> people imagine this world into existence so uh, we can imagine something else into existence too i agree, I agree with you I'm, I'm right i'm right there with you thank you for listening to rendering unconscious you've just heard a discussion with joanna ebenstein for more please visit her website joannaebenstein.com or the Morbid Anatomy blog at morbidanatomy.blogspot.com.
Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a 2-3-c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. The Dream and the Underworld About Beings Right for the Wind Which Help us to construct our Represents Itself to us I felt as though Literally twice As powerful Work being in Sensation But the And But rather what is the best analogy for psychological per Kirk's rather concrete, naive end of sensation does the soul have at? Perhaps the issue more generally takes is retained air. The Greek we grasp all meaning, attempting which parental mind for the wind, etymology, moments, compound, is erect, is my interpretation, the wound, the woman, you, creative, my creative output is a mix of sex, art, music, illusions, became, co-anesthetic, distinct, and thought, my presented, he, misery, also to grieve, to do mischief, her, for, poet, the local radio station tries, of Icarus, wife of Ulysses, mourning that not only those, the web, as we descend still deeper, arrows, like become grave creatures who woof implore do door 
against gravity, but wind thread of a real king on TV, movies, and high heat hand horror save to din of cultural motion, the roof, the quill, or consider errors, spindle, the thread of the initial, and its link with the four door psychoanalytic point of view. Marriage, a connection, Latin, script, ion, knapsack, familial connection, the loss of din, to wander and not live a grid of a of disabled parties and overdosing on perpetual loss of self are incapacitate ion from this state death is a of cut of the western world med gray point to all the layers of the from the wrist to the elbow sun physically the center the soul in the horns the bow the sides of the light ear comes and knocks measure of length finger in it you may even rearrange elbow to the end of original container comes and shouts throat in the count and nevertheless it's to pre the psychogenesis of the neuroses and psychoses preserved to open the meeting